Welcome everyone to episode 99 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host Matthew, and in today's episode, we're going to hear about the abduction and murder of James Bulger in England. I think this is only the second or third time that we've talked about a story from outside of the United States. So let's just get into the story. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock those doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. This story is a little graphic and kind of intense, so listener discretion is advised. On February 12, 1993, in Maryside, England, two 10-year-old boys, Robert Thompson and John Venables, abducted, tortured, and murdered a two-year-old boy named James Patrick Bulger. Thompson and Venables led Bulger away from the New Strand Shopping Center in Boodle after his mother had taken her eyes off of him momentarily. His mutilated body was found on a railway line two and a half miles away in Walton, Liverpool, two days later. Thompson and Venables were charged on February 20th, 1993 with abduction and murder. They were found guilty on November 24th, making them the youngest convicted murderers in modern British history. They were sentenced to indefinite detention at Her Majesty's pleasure and remained in custody until a parole board decision in June 2001 recommended their release on a lifelong license at age 18. Venables was sent back to prison in 2010 for breaching the terms of his license and was released on parole again in 2013 and in November 2017 was again sent to prison for possessing child sexual abuse images on his computer. The Bulger case has prompted widespread debate on how to handle young offenders when they are sentenced or released from custody. CCTV at the New Strand Shopping Center in Boodle on February 12th showed Thompson and Venables casually observing children, apparently selecting a target. The boys were playing truant from their local primary school, which they did regularly. Throughout the day, Thompson and Venables were seen shoplifting various items, including candy, 
batteries, a troll doll, and a can of blue modeling paint. One of the boys later revealed that they were planning to abduct a child, lead him to the busy road alongside the shopping center, and push him into the oncoming traffic. That same afternoon, two-year-old James Patrick Bulger from Kirkby went with his mother Denise to the New Strand Shopping Center. While inside the A.R. Tim's Butcher Shop on the lower floor of the center at around 3.40 p.m., Denise, who had let go of her son's hand to pay for her shopping, realized that her son was now missing. Thompson and Venables had approached him, took him by the hand, and led him out of the shopping center. The moment was caught on CCTV at 3.42. The boys then took Bulger to the Leeds and Liverpool Canal, around a quarter mile from the New Strand Shopping Center, where they dropped him on his head and he suffered injuries to his face. The boys joked about pushing Bulger into the canal. An eyewitness said that when he saw Bulger at the canal, the boy was, quote, crying his eyes out. The boys went on a two-and-a-half-mile walk across Liverpool. They were seen by around 38 people, and most bystanders did nothing to intervene. Two people challenged Thompson and Venables, but they either claimed that Bulger was their brother or that he was lost and that they were taking him to a police station. At one point, the boys took him into a pet shop from which they were ejected. Eventually, the boys arrived in Walton. With Walton Lane Police Station across the road, they hesitated, then led Bulger up a steep bank to a railway line near the former Walton and Anfield Railway Station, close to Walton Park Cemetery. One of the boys threw the blue paint that they had shoplifted earlier into Bulger's left eye. They kicked him, stomped on him, and threw bricks and stones at him. They placed batteries in his mouth and may have ins inserted some into his anus, although none were found there. Finally, the boys dropped a 22-pound railway fish plate on Bulger. He sustained 10 skull fractures as a result of the bar striking his head. Pathologist Alan Williams stated that Bulger suffered so many injuries, 42 in total, that none could be identified as the fatal blow. Thompson and Venables laid Bulger across the railway tracks and weighted his head down with rubble, hoping that a train would hit him and his death would be ruled an accident. After they left the scene, his body was cut in half by a train. Bulger's severed body was discovered by a group of children two days later. A forensic pathologist testified that Bulger died before he was struck by the train. Police had suspected that the boys had sexually assaulted James, as his shoes, socks, pants, and underpants had been removed. The pathologist's report, which was read out loud in court, found that Bulger's foreskin had been forcibly pulled back. When Thompson and Venables were questioned about this aspect of the attack by detectives and a child psychologist, the pair were reluctant to give details. When Venables was let out on parole, his psychiatrist Susan Bailey reported that, 
quote, visiting and revisiting the issue with John as a child, and now as an adolescent, he gives no account of any sexual element to the offense. The police quickly found low-resolution video images of James's abduction from the New Strand Shopping Center by two unidentified boys. The railway embankment upon which his body had been discovered was soon adorned with hundreds of bunches of flowers. The family of one boy, who was detained for questioning but subsequently released, had to flee the city due to threats from vigilantes. The breakthrough came when a woman, upon seeing slightly enhanced images of the two boys on national television, recognized Venables and remembered seeing him playing truant with Thompson in the Boodle area that day. She contacted the police and the boys were arrested. The fact that the suspects were so young came as a shock to investigating officers headed by Detective Superintendent Albert Kirby of Maryside Police. Early press reports and police statements have referred to James being seen with two youths, suggesting that the killers might have been teenagers. The ages of the boys being difficult to ascertain from the images captured by the CCTV. Forensic tests confirmed that both boys had the same blue paint on their clothing as found on James's body. Both had blood on their shoes. The blood on Thompson's shoe was matched to bulgers through DNA tests. A pattern of bruising on James's right cheek matched the features of the upper part of a shoe worn by Thompson, and paint mark in the toe cap of one of Venable's shoes indicated that he must have used some force when he kicked James. Thompson is said to have asked the police whether James had been taken to a hospital to, quote, get him alive again. The boys were each charged with the murder of James Bulger on February 20th, 1993, and appeared at South Sefton Youth Court on February 22nd, where they were, were remanded in custody to await trial. In the aftermath of their arrest and throughout the media accounts of their trial, the boys were referred to as Child A and Child B. Awaiting trial, they were held in the secure units where they would eventually be sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure. Up to 500 protesters gathered at the Magistrate's Court in the Metropolitan Borough of Sefton during the boys' initial court appearances. The parents of the accused were moved to different parts of the country and assumed new identities following death threats from vigilantes. The full trial opened at Sessions House, Preston, on November 1, 1993, conducted as an adult trial with the accused in the dock away from their parents and the judge and court officials in legal regalia. The boys denied the charges of murder, abduction, and attempted abduction. The, the attempted abduction charge related to an incident at the New Strand Shopping Center earlier on February 12th, the day of James's death. Thompson and Venables had attempted to lead away another two-year-old boy, but had been prevented by the boy's mother. 
Each boy sat in view of the court on raised chairs so they could see out of the dock designed for adults and were accompanied by two social workers and guards. Although they were separated from their parents, they were within touching distance when their families attended the trial. News stories reported the demeanor of the defendants. These aspects were later criticized by the European Court of Human Rights, which ruled in 1999 that they had not received a fair trial by being tried in public in an adult court. At the trial, the lead prosecution counsel, Richard Hendricks, successfully rebutted the principle which presumes that young children cannot be held legally responsible for their actions. Thompson and Venables were considered by the court to be capable of, quote, mischievous discretion, meaning an ability to act with criminal intent as they were mature enough to understand that they were doing something seriously wrong. A child psychiatrist, Eileen Vizard, who interviewed Thompson before the trial, was asked in court whether he would know the difference between right and wrong, and that it was wrong to take a young child away from his mother, and that it was wrong to cause injury to a child. Vizard replied, If the issue is on the balance of probabilities, I think I can answer with certainty. Vizard also said that Thompson was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder after the attack on James. Susan Bailey, the home office's forensic psychiatrist who interviewed Venables, said unequivocally that he knew the difference between right and wrong. Thompson and Venables did not speak during the trial, and the case against them was based to a large extent on the more than 20 hours of tape-recorded police interviews with the boys, which were played back in court. Thompson was considered to have taken the leading role in the abduction process, though it was Venables who had apparently initiated the idea of taking James to the railway line. Venables later described how James seemed to like him, holding his hand and allowing him to pick him up on the meandering journey to the scene of his murder. Lawrence Lee, who was the solicitor of Venables during the trial, later said that Thompson was one of the most frightening children he had ever seen, and compared him to the Pied Piper. After his appearances in court, Venables would strip off his clothes saying, quote, I can smell James like a baby smell. The prosecution admitted a number of exhibits during the trial, including a box of 27 bricks, a blood-stained stone, James's underpants, and the rusty iron bar described as a railway fish plate. The pathologist spent 33 minutes outlining the injuries sustained by James. Many of those to his legs had been inflicted after he was stripped from the waist down. Brain damage was extensive and included a hemorrhage. The boys, by then aged 11, were found guilty of James's murder at the Preston Court on November 24, 1993, becoming the youngest convicted murderers of the 20th century. The judge, Mr. Justice Moreland, told Thompson and Venables that they had committed a crime of unparalleled evil and barbarity. 
In my judgment, your conduct was both cunning and very wicked. Moreland sentenced them to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure with a recommendation that they should be kept in custody for, quote, a very, very many years to come, recommending a minimum term of eight years. That's not enough. At the close of the trial, the judge lifted reporting restrictions and allowed the names of the killers to be released, saying, I did this because the public interest overrode the interest of the defendants. There was a need for an informed public debate on crimes committed by young children. David Omond later criticized this decision and outlined the difficulties created by it in his 2010 review of the probation service's handling of the case. Shortly after the trial, and after the judge had recommended a minimum sentence of eight years, Lord Taylor of Gosforth, the Lord Chief Justice, recommended that the two boys should serve a minimum of ten years, which would have made them eligible for release in February 2003 at the age of 20. The editors of The Sun handed a petition bearing nearly 280,000 signatures to Michael Howard, the Home Secretary, in a bid to increase the time spent by both boys in custody. This campaign was successful, and Howard announced in July 1994 that the boys would be kept in custody for a minimum of 15 years, meaning that they would not be considered for release until February 2008 by which time they would be 25 years old. Lord Donaldson criticized Howard's intervention, describing the increased tariff as institutionalized vengeance by a politician playing to the gallery. The increased minimum term was overturned in 97 by the House of Lords that ruled it unlawful for the Home Secretary to decide on minimum sentences for young offenders. The High Court of Justice and European Court of Human Rights have since ruled that although the Parliament may set minimum and maximum terms for individual categories of crime, it is the responsibility of the trial judge, with the benefit of all the evidence and argument from both prosecution and defense counsel, to determine the minimum term in individual criminal cases. Tony Blair, then Shadow Home Secretary, gave a speech in Wellingborough during which he said, We hear of crimes so horrific they provoke anger and disbelief in equal proportions. These are the ugly manifestations of a society that is becoming unworthy of that name. Prime Minister John Major said that society needs to condemn a little more and understand a little less. The trial judge Mr. Justice Moreland stated that exposure to violent videos might have encouraged the action of Thomas and Venables. This was disputed by David McLean, the Minister of the State at the Home Office at the time, who said that police had found no evidence linking the case with, quote, video nasties. Some British tabloid newspapers claimed that the attack on James Bulger was inspired by the film Child's Play 3 and campaigned for the rules on quote video nasties to be tightened. During the police investigation it emerged that Child's Play 3 
was one of the film that Venable's father had rented in the months prior to the killing, but it was not established that Venables had ever watched it. One scene in the film shows the malevolent doll Chucky being splashed with blue paint during a paintball game. A Maryside detective said, We went through something like 200 titles rented by the Venables family. There were some you and I wouldn't want to see, but nothing, no scene, or plot, or dialogue where you could put your finger on the freeze button and say, that influenced a boy to go out and commit murder. Inspector Ray Simpson of Maryside Police commented, If you're going to link this murder to a film, you might as well link it to the Railway Children. The Criminal Justice and Public Order Act 1994 clarified the rules on the availability of certain types of video material to children. After the trial, Thompson was held at the Barton Moss Secure Care Center in Manchester. Venables was detained in Vardy House, a small eight-bed unit at Red Bank Secure Unit in St. Helens on Maryside. These locations were not publicly known until after the boys' release. Details of the boys' lives were recorded twice daily on running sheets and signed by the member of staff who had written them. The records were stored at the units and copied to officials in Whitehall. The boys were taught to conceal their real names and the crime that they had committed, which resulted in their being in the units. Venable's parents regularly visited their son at Red Bank, just as Thompson's mother did every three days at Barton Moss. The boys received education and rehabilitation. Despite initial problems, Venables was said to have eventually made good progress at Red Bank, resulting in him being kept there for the full eight years, despite the facility only being a short-stay remand unit. Both boys were reported to suffer post-traumatic stress disorder, and Venables in particular told of experiencing nightmares and flashbacks of the murder. In 1999, lawyers for Thompson and Venables appealed to the European Court of Human Rights that the boys' trial had not been impartial since they were too young to follow proceedings and understand an adult court. The court dismissed their claim that the trial was inhuman and degrading treatment, but upheld their claim that they were denied a fair trial by the nature of the court proceedings. The court also held that the Home Secretary's intervention had led a highly charged atmosphere, which resulted in an unfair judgment. On March 15, 1999, the court in Strasbourg ruled by 14 votes to 5 that there had been a violation of Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights regarding the fairness of the trial of Thompson and Venables. They stated, the public trial process in an adult court must be regarded in the case of an 11-year-old child as a severely intimidating procedure. In September of 1999, James's parents appealed to the European Court of Human Rights but failed to persuade the court that a victim of a crime has the right to be involved in determining the sentence of the perpetrator. The European court case led to the new Lord Chief Justice 
Harry Wolf, reviewing the minimum sentence. In October of 2000, he recommended the tariff be reduced from 10 to 8 years, adding that Her Majesty's Young Offender Institution was a corrosive atmosphere for the juveniles. In June 2001, after a six-month review, the parole board ruled that the boys were no longer a threat to public safety and could be released as their minimum tariff had expired in February of that year. Home Secretary David Blunkett approved the decision and they released, were released a few weeks later on lifelong license after serving eight years. It was reported that both boys were given new identities and moved to secret locations under a witness protection-like program. This was supported by the fabrication of passports, national insurance numbers, qualification certificates, and medical records. Blunkett added his own conditions to their license and insisted on being sent daily updates on the boys' actions. The terms of their release included the following. They were not allowed to contact each other or the Bulger family. They were prohibited from hitting, visiting the Maryside region. Curfews may be imposed on them, and they must report to probation officers. If they breached the rules or were deemed a risk to the public, they could be returned to prison. A court injunction was imposed on the media after the trial, preventing the publication of details about Thompson and Venables. The worldwide injunction was kept in force following their release on parole, so their new identities and locations could not be published. In 2001, Blunkett stated, The injunction was granted because there was a real and strong possibility that their lives would be at risk if their identities became known. In the months after the trial, and following the birth of their second son, the marriage of Bulger's parents, Ralph and Denise, broke down. They divorced in 1995. Denise Bulger married Stuart Fergus, with whom she had two sons. Ralph Bulger also remarried and had three daughters with his second wife. On March 14, 2008, an appeal to set up a Red Balloon Learner Center on Maryside in memory of James was launched by his mother and Esther Rantzizen. A memorial garden in James's memory was created in Sacred Heart Primary School in his hometown of Kirkby, the school he would have been expected to attend had he not been murdered. In March 2010, a call was made by England's Children's Commissioner Maggie Atkinson to raise the age of criminal responsibility from 10 to 12. She said that the killers of James Bulger should have undergone programs to help turn their lives around, rather than being prosecuted. The Ministry of Justice rejected the call, saying that children over the age of 10 knew the difference between bad behavior and serious wrongdoing. During Venables and Thompson's incarcerations, the court order protecting their identities was renewed, but details about them, both real and fabricated, gradually leaked into the press and via the internet. The Observer revealed that both Venables and Thompson had passed A-levels during their sentences. 
the paper also stated that James's family's lawyers had consulted psychiatric experts in order to present the parole panel with a report that suggested that Thompson is an undiagnosed psychopath, citing his lack of remorse during his trial and arrest. That report was ultimately dismissed. However, Thompson's lack of remorse at the time, in stark contrast to Venables, led to considerable scrutiny from the parole panel. Upon release, both Thompson and Venables had lost all trace of their Liverpool accent. In a psychiatric report prepared in 2000 before Venables' release, he was described as posing a trivial risk to the public and unlikely to reoffend. The chances of his successful rehabilitation were described as very high. The Manchester Evening News published details that suggested the names of the secure institutions in which the pair were housed, in breach of the injunction against publicity that had been renewed in early 2001. In December that year, the paper was fined £30,000 for contempt of court in order to pay cost of £120,000. No significant publication or vigilante action against Thompson or Venables has occurred. Despite this, Bulger's mother, Denise, told how in 2004 she received a tip from an anonymous source that helped her locate Thompson. Upon seeing him, she was paralyzed with hatred and was unable to confront him. In April of 2007, Documents released under the Freedom of Information Act confirmed that the Home Office had spent £13,000 on an injunction to prevent a foreign magazine from revealing the new identities of Thompson and Venables. In April 2010, a 19-year-old man from the Isle of Man was given a three-month suspended prison sentence for falsely claiming in a Facebook message that one of his former colleagues was Thompson. In passing sentence, Deputy High Bailiff Alistair Montgomery said that the teenager had, quote, put that person at significant risk of serious harm and in a perilous position by making the allegation. In March 2012, a 26-year-old man from Chorley, Lancashire, was arrested after allegedly setting up a Facebook group with the title, What Happened to Jamie Bulger Was Fucking Hilarious. The man's computer was seized for further investigations. Good, he should have been arrested. That is a horrible Facebook group. On February 25th, 2013, the Attorney General's office announced that it was instituting contempt of court proceedings against several people who had allegedly published photographs online showing Thompson or Venables as adults. A spokesman commented, There are many different images circulating online claiming to be of Venables or Thompson. Potentially innocent individuals may be wrongly identified as being one of the two men and placed in danger. The order and its enforcement is therefore intended to protect not only Venables and Thompson, but also those members of the public who have been incorrectly identified as being one of the two men. On April 26, 2013, 
two men received suspended jail sentences of nine months after admitting to contempt of court by publishing photographs that they claimed to be of Venables and Thompson on Facebook and Twitter. The posts were seen by 24,000 people. According to BBC legal correspondent Clive Coleman, the purpose of the prosecution was to ensure that the public was aware that internet users were also subject to the law of contempt. On November 27, 2013, a man from Liverpool received a 14-month prison sentence for posting images on Twitter claiming to show Venables. On January 31, 2019, a man and a woman pled guilty to eight contempt of court offenses at the High Court after they admitted to posting photos on social media that they claimed identified Venables. Both received suspended prison sentences. In March 2019, actress Tina Malone was given an eight-month suspended prison sentence for posting Venables' identity on Facebook. In January 2020, a 53-year-old woman from Amanford in South Wales received a prison sentence of eight months, suspended for 15 months. In November 2017, she had published an alleged photograph of Venables on Facebook with the advice, share this as much as possible. Lord Justice Nigel Davis said that the offense was close to the line for an immediate prison sentence, but suspended the sentence after observing an early admission of guilt and remorse by the woman. Venables contacted his probation officer in February of 2010, reporting that he feared that his new identity had been compromised at his place of work. When the officer arrived at his flat, Venables was attempting to remove or destroy the hard drive of his computer with a knife and a can opener. The officer's suspicions were aroused and the computer was taken away for examination, leading to the discovery of the child sexual abuse material, which included children as young as two being hurt by adults. On March 2, 2010, the Ministry of Justice revealed that Venables had been returned to prison for an unspecified violation of the terms of his license of release. Justice Secretary Jack Straw stated that Venables had been returned to prison because of, quote, extremely serious allegations, and stated that he was unable to give further details of the reasons for John Venables' return to custody, because it was not in the public interest to do so. On March 7th, media reports said that he had been accused of offenses related to possession of child sexual abuse material. In a statement to the House of Commons on March 8, 2010, Straw reiterated that it was, quote, not in the interest of justice to reveal the reasons why Venables had been returned to custody. Baroness's Butler Sloss the judge who made the decision to grant Venables anonymity in 2001 warned that Venables could be killed if his identity was revealed. James's mother, Denise Fergus, said that she was angry that the parole board did not tell her that Venables had been returned to prison and called for his anonymity to be removed if he was charged with a crime. 
A spokesperson for the Ministry of Justice stated that there was a worldwide injunction against publication of either killer's location or new identity. Venable's return to prison revived a false claim that a man from Fleetwood, Lancashire was Venable's. While the claim was reported and dismissed in September 2005, it reappeared in March 2010 when it was circulated wildly via SMS message and Facebook. Chief Inspector Tracy O'Gara of Lancashire Constabulary stated, An individual who was targeted four and a half years ago was not John Venables, and now he has left the area. On June 21, 2010, Venables was charged with possession and distribution of indecent images of children. It was alleged that he had downloaded 57 indecent images of children over a 12-month period to February 2010 and had allowed other people to access the files through a peer-to-peer network. Venables faced two charges under the Protection of Children Act 1978. On July 23rd, Venables appeared at a court hearing at the Old Bailey via a video link, visible only to the judge hearing the case. He pled guilty to charges of downloading and distributing child sexual abuse material and was sentenced to two years imprisonment. At the court hearing, it emerged that Venables had posted in online chat rooms as a 35-year-old Don Smith and supposedly married a woman from Liverpool who boasted about abusing her 8-year-old daughter in the hope of obtaining further materials. The judge, Mr. Justice David Bean, ruled that Venable's new identity could not be revealed, but the media were allowed to report that he had been living in Cheshire at the time of his arrest. The High Court also heard that Venable's had been arrested on suspicion of a fray in September 2008, following a drunken street fight with another man. Later that year, he was cautioned for possession of cocaine. In November of 2010, a review of the National Probation Service handling of the case by David Omond found that probation officers could not have prevented Venables from downloading the child sexual abuse material. Harry Fletcher, the Assistant General Secretary of the National Association of Probation Officers, said that only 24-hour surveillance would have stopped him. Venables was eligible for parole in July of 2011. On June 27, 2011, the parole board decided that he would remain in custody and that his parole would not be considered again for at least another year. In late June 2019, it was reported that British officials had considered resettling Venables in Canada Australia or New Zealand due to the high cost behind protecting his anonymity. British authorities had reportedly spent £65,000 in legal fees to keep his identity a secret. In response to media coverage, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern remarked that due to his criminal history, Venables would need an exemption under New Zealand's Immigration Act and that he should, quote, not bother applying.
this was definitely a rough one to read. Um, my my opinion, I I feel like those two boys they should have been put in jail for life. I know that's not something they do over in Europe. They look at really long prison sentences as cruel and unusual punishment. But even even as ten year old boys, they knew the difference between right and wrong. They knew what they were doing was wrong, and they still did it. They they went out of their way to kidnap, torture, and murder a two year old little boy. They should spend the rest of their life in jail. And the fact that they spent so much money trying to hide their identities after they released them, after just a, a ludicrously short amount of time in jail, not long enough. And then to threaten other people with jail time for basically outing them and letting people know who they became. I, I'll never agree with that. They, just, they, they should have spent the rest of their life in jail. But that is going to do it for today's episode. Um, I hope that you enjoyed the story or became enraged by it like I did. If you did, could you please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts? A five-star rating really helps others to find the show. Don't forget to join us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. We've had an influx of new members in the Ohio Unsaw Facebook group, so welcome to everybody. There's been over 100 people in the last few days, so welcome to the show. Um, even if, if you listen on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, uh, could you do me a favor and just, just go subscribe on YouTube, help me get my subscriber count up, because remember, once I hit 500 subscribers, there will be a YouTube-exclusive bonus episode. And I'm about 100 subscribers away from that. Now, if you do enjoy the show, uh, please consider helping to support us by subscribing on Patreon, with monthly bonus episodes being available from the $5 tier. But once again, thank you everyone for listening. And make sure to keep your doors and windows locked. And stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. Mm-hmm.